This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Chapter 1, Part A The Characters of Spiritual Life. This book has been called The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today in order to emphasize as much as possible the practical, here and now, nature of its subject, and specially to combat the idea that the spiritual life, or the mystic life, as its more intense manifestations are sometimes called, is to be regarded as primarily a matter of history. It is not. It is a matter of biology. Though we cannot disregard history in our study of it, that history will only be valuable to us in so far as we keep tight hold on its direct connection with the present, its immediate bearing on our own lives, and this we shall do only in so far as we realize the unity of all the higher experiences of the race. In fact, were I called upon to choose a motto which should express the central notion of these chapters, that motto would be, There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. This declaration I would interpret in the widest possible sense, as suggesting the underlying harmony and single inspiration of all man's various and apparently conflicting expressions of his instinct for fullness of life. For we shall not be able to make order, in any hopeful sense, of the tangle of material which is before us, until we have subdued it to this ruling thought, seen one transcendent object, towards which all our twisting pathways run, and one impulsion pressing us towards it. As psychology is now teaching us to find, at all levels of our craving, dreaming, or thinking, the diverse expressions of one psychic energy, so that type of philosophy which comes nearest to the religion of the spirit invites us to find at all levels of life the workings and strivings of one power, a reality which both underlies and crowns all our other, lesser, strivings. 1. Variously manifested in partial achievements of order and goodness, in diversities of beauty, and in our graded apprehensions of truth, this spirit is yet most fully known to us in the transcendent values of holiness and love. The more deeply it is loved by man, the nearer he draws to its heart, and the greater his love, the more fully does he experience its transforming and energizing power. The words of Plotinus are still true for every one of us, and are unaffected by the presence or absence of creed. Yonder is the true object of our love, which it is possible to grasp and to live with and truly to possess, since no envelope of flesh separates us from it, he who has seen it knows what I say, that the soul then has another life when it comes to God, and having come possesses him, and knows when in that state that it is in the presence of the dispenser of true life, and that it needs nothing further. 2. So, if we would achieve anything like a real integration of life, and until we have done so, we are bound to be restless and uncertain in our touch upon experience. We are compelled to press back towards contact with this living reality, however conceived by us. 
and this not by way of a retreat from our actual physical and mental life, but by way of a fulfillment of it. More perhaps than ever before, men are now driven to ask themselves the searching question of the disciple in Boma's dialogue on the supersensual life. Seeing I am in nature, how may I come through nature into the supersensual ground without destroying nature? 3. And such a coming through into the ground, such a finding and feeling of eternal life, is, I take it, the central business of religion. For religion is committed to achieving a synthesis of the eternal and the ever-fleeting, of nature and of spirit, lifting up the whole of life to a greater reality because a greater participation in eternity. Such a participation in eternity, manifested in the time world, is the very essence of the spiritual life, but set as we are in mutability, our apprehensions of it can only be partial and relative. Absolutes are known only to absolute mind. Our measurements, however careful and intricate, can never tally with the measurements of God. As Einstein conceives of space curved round the sun, we, borrowing his symbolism for a moment, may perhaps think of the world of spirit as curved round the human soul, shaped to our finite understanding, and therefore presenting to us innumerable angles of approach. This means that God can and must be sought only within and through our human experience. Where, says Jacoboma, will you seek for God? Seek Him in your soul, which has proceeded out of the eternal nature, the living fountain of forces wherein divine working stands. 4. But, on the other hand, such limitation as this is no argument for agnosticism. For this, our human experience in its humbling imperfection, however we interpret it, is as real within its own system of reference as anything else. It is our inevitably limited way of laying hold on the stuff of existence, and not less real for that than the monkey's way on one hand, or the angel's way on the other. Only we must be sure that we do it as thoroughly and completely as we can, disdaining the indolence which so easily relapses to the lower level and the smaller world. And the first point I wish to make is that the experience which we call the life of the Spirit is such a genuine fact which meets us at all times and places and at all levels of life. It is an experience which is independent of and often precedes any explanation or rationalization we may choose to make of it, and no one, as a matter of fact, takes any real interest in the explanation unless he has had some form of the experience. We notice, too, that it is most ordinarily and also most impressively given to us as such an objective experience, whole and unanalyzed, and that when it is thus given and perceived as affecting a transfiguration of human character, we on our part most readily understand and respond to it. Thus Plotinus, than whom few persons have lived more capable of analysis, can only say, the soul knows when in that state that it is in the presence of the dispenser of true life. Yet in saying this, does he not tell us far more, and rouse in us a greater and more fruitful longing, than in all his disquisitions about the worlds of spirit and of soul? And Kabir, from another continent and time, saying, 
more than all else do i cherish at heart the love which makes me to live a limitless life in this world five assures us in these words that he too has known that more abundant life these are the statements of the pure religious experience in so far as pure experience is possible to us which is only of course in a limited and relative sense the subjective element all that the psychologist means by apperception must enter in and control it nevertheless they refer to man's communion with an independent objective reality this experience is more real and concrete therefore more important than any of the systems by which theology seeks to explain it we may then take it without prejudice to any special belief that the spiritual life we wish to study is one life based on experience of one reality and manifested in the diversity of gifts and graces which men have been willing to call true holy beautiful and good for the moment at least we may accept the definition of it given by dr bosanquet as oneness with the supreme good in every facet of the heart and will six and since without derogation of its transcendent character its vigor wonder and worth it is in human experience rather than in speculation that we are bound to seek it we shall look first at the forms taken by man's intuition of eternity the life to which it seems to call him and next at the actual appearance of this life in history then at the psychological machinery by which we may lay hold of it the contributions which religious institutions make to its realization and last turning our backs on these partial explorations of the living whole seek if we can to seek something of its inwardness as it appears to the individual the way in which education may best prepare its fulfillment and the part it must play in the social group we begin therefore at the starting point of this life of spirit in man's vague fluctuating yet persistent apprehension of an enduring and transcendent reality his instinct for god the characteristic forms taken by this instinct are simple and fairly well known complication only comes in with the interpretation we put on them by three main ways we tend to realize our limited personal relations with that transcendent other which we call divine eternal or real and these appearing perpetually in the vast literature of religion might be illustrated from all places and all times first there is the profound sense of security of being safely held in a cosmos of which despite all contrary appearance peace is the very heart and which is not inimical to our true interests for those whose religious experience takes this form god is the ground of the soul the unmoved our very rest statements which meet us again and again in spiritual literature this certitude of a principle of permanence within and beyond our world of change the sense of eternal life lies at the very center of the religious consciousness which will never on this point capitulate to the attacks of philosophy on the one hand such as those of the new realists or of psychology on the other hand assuring him that what he mistakes for the eternal world is really his own unconscious mind here man at least in his great representatives the persons of transcendent religious genius seems to get beyond all labels 
he finds and feels a truth that cannot fail him, and that satisfies both his heart and mind, a justification of that transcendental feeling which is the soul alike of philosophy and of art. If his life has its roots here, it will be a fruitful tree, and whatever its outward activities, it will be a spiritual life, since it is lived, as George Fox was so fond of saying, in the universal spirit. All know the great passage in St. Augustine's Confessions, in which he describes how the mysterious eye of his soul gazed on the light that never changes, above the eye of the soul, and above intelligence. 7. There is nothing archaic in such an experience. Though its description may depend on the language of Neoplatonism, it is in its essence as possible and as fruitful for us today as it was in the fourth century, and the doctrine and discipline of Christian prayer have always admitted its validity. Here, and in many other examples which might be quoted, the spiritual fact is interpreted in a non-personal and cosmic way, and we must remember that what is described to us is always, inevitably, the more or less emotional interpretation, never the pure immediacy of experience. This interpretation frequently makes use of the symbolisms of space, stillness, and light. The contemplative soul is lost in the ocean of the Godhead, enters his silence, or exclaims with Dante, La mia vista, venendo sincera, e più e più entrava per lo raggio del alta luce, che dasse e vera. 8. But in the second characteristic form of the religious experience, the relationship is felt rather as the intimate and reciprocal communion of a person with a person, a form of apprehension which is common to the great majority of devout natures. It is true that divine reality, while doubtless including in its span all the values we associate with personality, must far overpass it, and this conclusion has been reached again and again by profoundly religious minds, of whom among Christians we need only mention Dionysius the Areopagite, Eckhart, and Roycebrook. Yet these very minds have always in the end discovered the necessity of finding place for the overwhelming certitude of a personal contact, a prevenient and an answering love. For it is always in a personal and emotional relationship that man finds himself impelled to surrender to God, and this surrender is felt by him to evoke a response. It is significant that even modern liberalism is forced, in the teeth of rationality, to acknowledge this fact of the religious experience. Thus we have on one hand the Catholic-minded, but certainly unorthodox Spanish thinker Miguel de Unamuno, confessing, I believe in God as I believe in my friends, because I feel the breath of his affection, feel his invisible and intangible hand drawing me, leading me, grasping me. Once and again in my life I have seen myself suspended in a trance over the abyss, once and again I have found myself at the crossroads, confronted by a choice of ways and aware that in choosing one I should be renouncing all the others, for there is no turning back upon these roads of life, and once and again in such unique moments as these I have felt the impulse of a mighty power, conscious, sovereign, and loving, and then, before the feet of the wayfarer, opens out the way of the Lord." Nine. Compare this with Upton the Unitarian. 
if he says this absolute presence which meets us face to face in the most momentous of our life's experiences which pours into our fainting the elixir of new life-mud strength and into our wounded hearts the balm of a quite infinite sympathy cannot fitly be called a personal presence it is only because this word personal is too poor and carries with it associations too human and too limited adequately to express this profound God-consciousness. 10. Such a personal God-consciousness is the one impelling cause of those moral struggles, sacrifices, and purifications, those costing and heroic activities to which all greatly spiritual souls find themselves drawn. We note that these souls experience it even when it conflicts with their philosophy, for a real religious intuition is always accepted by the self that has it as taking priority of thought, and carrying with it, so to speak, its own guarantees. Thus Blake, for whom the Holy Ghost was an intellectual fountain, hears the divine voice crying, I am not a god afar off, I am a brother and friend. Within your bosoms I reside, and you reside in me. 11. Thus, in the last resort, the Sufi poet can only say, O soul, seek the beloved. O friend, seek the friend. 12. Thus even Plotinus is driven to speak of his divine wisdom as the father and ever-present companion of the soul. 13. And Kabir, for whom God is the unconditioned and the formless, can yet exclaim, From the beginning until the end of time there is love between me and thee. How shall such love be extinguished? 14. Christianity, through its concepts of the divine fatherhood and of the eternal Christ, has given to this sense of personal communion its fullest and most beautiful expression. Amore, citamo non sta ozioso, tanto li pa dolce de te gustare, ma tutta ora vive desideroso, como te possa stretto più amare. Che tanto sta per te lo cor gioioso, ci non sentisse nol poria parlare, quanto è dolce a gustare lo tuo sapore. 15. On the immense question of what it is that lies behind this sense of direct intercourse, this passionate friendship with the invisible, I cannot enter. But it has been one of the strongest and most fruitful influences in religious history, and gives in particular its special color to the most perfect developments of Christian mysticism. Last, and here is the aspect of religious experience which is specially to concern us, spirit is felt as an inflowing power, a veritable accession of vitality, energizing the self, or the religious group, impelling it to the fullest and most zealous living out of its existence, giving it fresh joy and vigor, and lifting it to fresh levels of life. This sense of enhanced life is a mark of all religions of the Spirit. He giveth power to the faint, says the second Isaiah, and to them that hath no might he increaseth strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. 16. I live, yet not I. I can do all things, says St. Paul, 
seeking to express his dependence on this divine strength invading and controlling him, and assures his neophytes that they too have received the spirit of power. My life, says St. Augustine, shall be a real life, being wholly full of thee. 17. Having found God, says a modern Indian saint, the current of my life flowed on swiftly. I gained fresh strength. 18. All other men and women of the Spirit speak in the same sense when they try to describe the source of their activity and endurance. So the rich experiences of the religious consciousness seem to be resumed in these three outstanding types of spiritual awareness, the cosmic, ontological, or transcendent, finding God as the infinite reality outside and beyond us, the personal, finding Him as the living and responsive, object of our love, in immediate touch with us. The dynamic, finding him as the power that dwells within or energizes us. These are not exclusive but complementary apprehensions, giving objectives to intellect, feeling, and will. They must all be taken into account in any attempt to estimate the full character of the spiritual life, and this life can hardly achieve perfection unless all three be present in some measure. Thus the French contemplative Lucie Christine says, When the voice of God called her, it was at one and the same time a light, a drawing, and a power. 19. And her Indian contemporary, the Maharishi Devendranath Thakur, that seekers after God must realize Brahma in these three places. They must see him within, see him without, and see him in that abode of Brahma where he exists in himself. 20. And it seems to me that what we have in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is above all the crystallization and mind's interpretation of these three ways in which our simple contact with God is actualized by us. It is, like so many other dogmas, when we get to the bottom of them, an attempt to describe experience. What is that supernal symphony of which this elusive music, with its three complementary strains, forms part? We cannot know this, since we are debarred by our situation from knowledge of wholes. But even those strains which we do hear assure us how far we are yet from conceiving the possibilities of life, of power, of beauty, which are contained in them. And if the first type of experience, with the immense feeling of assurance, of peace, and of quietude, which comes from our intuitive contact with that world which Roycebrook called the world that is unwalled, 21, and from the mind's utter surrender and abolition of resistances, if all this seems to lead to a merely static or contemplative conception of the spiritual life, the third type of experience, with its impulse towards action, its often strongly felt accession of vitality and power, leads inevitably to a complementary and dynamic interpretation of that life. Indeed, if the first moment in the life of the spirit be man's apprehension of eternal life, the second moment, without which the first has little worth for him, consists of his response to that transcendent reality. Perception of it lays on him the obligation of living in its atmosphere, fulfilling its meaning if he can, and this will involve for him a measure of inward transformation, a difficult growth and change. Thus the ideas of new birth and regeneration have always been, and I think ever must be, 
closely associated with man's discovery of God, and the soul's true path seems to be from intuition, through adoration, to moral effort, and thence to charity. Even so did the Oxford Methodists, who began by trying only to worship God and be good by adhering to a strict devotional rule, soon find themselves impelled to try to do good by active social work. 22. And at his highest development, and in so far as he has appropriated the full richness of experience which is offered to him, man will and should find himself as it were flung to and fro between action and contemplation between the call to transcendence, to a simple self-loss in the unfathomable and adorable life of God, and the call to a full, rich, and various actualization of personal life in the energetic strivings of a fellow worker with Him, between the soul's profound sense of transcendent love and its felt possession of and duty towards eminent love, a paradox which only some form of incarnational philosophy can solve. It is said of Abu Said, the great Sufi, at the full term of his development, that he did all normal things while ever thinking of God. 23. Here, I believe, we find the norm of the spiritual life, in such a complete response both to temporal and to the eternal revelations and demands of the divine nature. On the one hand, the highest and most costing calls made on us by that world of succession in which we find ourselves— on the other, an unmoved abiding in the bosom of eternity, where never was heard quarter-clock to strike, never seen minute-glass to turn. 24. There have been many schools and periods in which one half of this dual life of man has been unduly emphasized to the detriment of the other. Often in the East, and often too in the first pre-Benedictine phase of Christian monasticism, there has been an unbalanced cultivation of the contemplative life, resulting in a narrow, abnormal, imperfectly vitalized, asocial type of spirituality. On the other hand, in our own day the tendency to action usually obliterates the contemplative side of experience altogether, and the result is the feverishness, exhaustion, and uncertainty of aim characteristic of the overdriven and the underfed. But no one can be said to live in its fullness the life of the spirit who does not observe a due balance between the two, both receiving and giving, both apprehending and expressing, and thus achieving that state of which Roycebrook said, Then only is our life a whole, when work and contemplation dwell in us side by side, and we are perfectly in both of them at once. 25. All Christian writers on the life of the Spirit point to the perfect achievement of this twofold ideal in Christ, the pattern of that completed humanity towards which the indwelling Spirit is pressing the race, his deeds of power and mercy, his richly various responses to every level of human existence, his gift to others of new faith and life, were directly dependent on the night spent on the mountain in prayer. When St. Paul entreats us to grow up into the fullness of his stature, this is the ideal that is implied. In the intermediate term of the religious experience, that felt communion with a person which is the clue of the devotional life, we get as it were the link between the extreme apprehensions of transcendence and of eminence, and their expression in the lives of contemplation and of action, 
and also a focus for that religious emotion which is the most powerful stimulus to spiritual growth. It is needless to emphasize the splendid use which Christianity has made of this type of experience, nor, unfortunately, the exaggerations to which it has led. Both extremes are richly represented in the literature of mysticism. But we should remember that Christianity is not alone in thus requiring place to be made for such a conception of God as shall give body to all the most precious and fruitful experiences of the heart, providing simple human sense and human feeling with something on which to lay hold. In India there is the existence, within and alongside the austere worship of the unconditioned Brahma, of the ardent personal Vaishnavite devotion to the heart's Lord, known as the Bhakti Marga. In Islam, there is the impassioned longing of the Sufis for the Beloved, who is the rose of all reason and all truth. Without thee, O Beloved, I cannot rest. Thy goodness towards me I cannot reckon. Though every hair on my body becomes a tongue, a thousand part of the thanks due to thee I cannot tell. 26. There is the sudden note of rapture which startles us in the Neoplatonists, as when Plotinus speaks of the name of love for what is there to know, the passion of a lover resting on the bosom of his love. 27. Surely we may accept all these as the instinctive responses of a diversity of spirits to the one eternal spirit of life and love, and recognize that without such personal response, such a discovery of imperishable love a fully lived spiritual life is no more possible than is a fully lived physical life from which love has been left out. When we descend from experience to interpretation, the paradoxical character of such a personal sense of intimacy is eased for us if we remember that the religious man's awareness of the indwelling spirit or of a divine companionship, whatever name he gives it, is just his limited realization, achieved by means of his own mental machinery, of a universal and not a particular truth. To this realization he brings all his human, more his subhuman, feelings and experiences, not only those which are vaguely called his spiritual intuitions, but the full weight of his impulsive and emotional life. His experience and its interpretation are, then, inevitably conditioned by this apperceiving mass, and here I think the intellect should show mercy, and not probe without remorse into those tender places where the heart and the spirit are at one. Let us then be content to note that when we consult the works of those who have best and most fully interpreted their religion in a universal sense, we find how careful they are to provide a category for this experience of a personally known and loved indwelling divinity, man's father, lover, saviour, ever-present companion, which shall avoid its identification with the mere spirit of nature, while safeguarding its eminence no less than its transcendent quality. Thus Julian of Norwich heard in her meditations the voice of God saying to her, See, I am in all things. See, I lift never mine hand from off my works, nor ever shall. 28. Is it possible to state more plainly the indivisible identity of the spirit of life? See, I am in all things. In the terrific energies of the stellar universe and the smallest song of the birds. In the seething struggle of modern industrialism 
as much a part of nature of those works on which his hands are laid as the more easily comprehended economy of the ant-heap and the hive. This sense of the personal presence of an abiding reality, fulfilling and transcending all our highest values here in our space-time world of effort, may well be regarded as the differential mark of real spiritual experience, wherever found. It chimes well with the definition of Professor Pratt, who observes that the truly spiritual man, though he may not be any better morally than his non-religious neighbor, has a confidence in the universe, and an inner joy which the other does not know, is more at home in the universe as a whole than other men. End of chapter 1 Part A